Well, please turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. And Genesis chapter 2. We're coming today to the, the third part of our study on Christian ethics. Again, the third sort of main heading over the last 18 months or so. Um, we've looked at the subject of worship and the church, uh, marriage and family. And uh, now we'll come to the third aspect of this, which is, again, the ethics of state and society. I need the Lord's help in this. Uh, just one text for our attention to begin with today. It is uh, Genesis chapter 2 and the verse number 15. And the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. And say so we're coming to this third area of of Christian ethics. And I remind you again that when we think of the creation ordinances, we see the Bible reveals these three spheres, family, church, and we often think of states or society. I suppose in some ways we think of these things in terms of spheres of authority and responsibility. Again, the father is the head of the home, the family, and we think of the authorities as the head of the state. And again, there's a uh, an inferior and superior relationship there. And in the church, there are the elders and the members, again, with a, a relationship of authority. And so we see, again, in the Word of God, these are the three dominant spheres of authority in which we live. We live under obligation, the one to other, in these areas. And they are distinct. And yet they interreact. And again, does the church discipline children? We looked at those things last time. Well, no, that's the remit of the parents, uh, but in the church has a remit regarding family life. And in a similar fashion, we will see interaction between church, states, and family. But let me take you back to, if you like, the, the beginning of all of this and remind you how we come to these three separate areas. The creation ordinances, strictly understood, are the Sabbath, marriage, and labor. Those are the three explicit creation ordinances we see the Sabbath there, chapter 2, verse number 1. And following the seventh day, God ended his work. And then verse 3, and God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it. Again, I remind you that as a creation ordinance, these are things that God has put into the fabric of his creation for the well-being of creation, for the well-being of those he's made, mankind in particular. And so this is before the fall, before Genesis 3, and before sin enters the world, God is saying to unfallen man, the Sabbath is necessary for your benefit and indeed for the glory of God in his creation. And so the Sabbath precedes the fall, it precedes Sinai, it precedes Israel, it is part of God's arrangement for his creation forever, forever. And of course, the prospect of, the, uh, of our redemption is that we enter a final, eternal Sabbath rest in Christ Jesus. So you've got that aspect of it involved there. Marriage then, of course, we saw at the end of chapter 2. Uh, again, it's not good for man to be alone. And the Lord sees that and gives Adam his wife, marriage. And then verse number 2, verse 15, there is the issue of labor. The Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. I say those are the three explicit creation ordinances. 
But from that, people have rightly, uh, they've rightly expanded those thoughts to the three spheres of human existence. From the Sabbath, you get the principle of worship. And as the Bible begins to develop the idea of worship, it does so through Abraham and the chosen people of God, delivering paganism to faith in the true God. Then you see Israel and the theocracy. You have the tabernacle on the temple. And then you go forward from that into the New Testament. And you see Christ instituting, if you like, a New Testament church under the authority of the apostles. And so where does worship happen now? Well, not in a garden, not in a tabernacle or a temple, but in the church, the living body of Christ on earth. And so you're seeing that continuity, but it goes back to creation. Its beginning is in creation, in the ordinance of corporate worship. Family, of course, uh, derives directly from the idea of marriage, and whilst children are not explicitly involved, you like, although there is the multiplication idea of chapter 1, you certainly see the overall principle of marriage and the family taught in this creation ordinance. How do you get, though, from work to principles of state? That one's the one that's perhaps less clearly understood. And so you see a big jump if you're going to see Bible ethics regarding states and their creation and their origin, well, how is that true? Well, let me ask you the question, what is work for? Why do you work? Okay, it's not rhetorical this time. Answer the question, why do you work? Hmm? To eat. Okay, so you work to eat. And again, you think back to the, the concept of subsistence living. There was a real sense you, you work to feed yourself. But not yourself, Paul. Who else are you feeding? Your family, okay? So you see the interaction between family and work. There's a connection of provision there. You're seeking to care for the, for the family. Yep. Beyond that, okay. to give to others. Okay, so that develops, doesn't it? You see, this is the whole point of this. You see these themes that are they're in the very fabric of creation, but they develop going forward. And so you see, when you get to the Old Testament law, they were to leave the corners of the field ungleaned so the poor and the needy could come and gather those things. People like Ruth coming along and benefiting from the work of others. Do I use them? No. Yes, there's also this idea, this is another connection, there is this idea of giving unto Caesar that you see later on when you come to the New Testament. Now, I'm going to take that backwards, and you have the idea that work, again, in the Old Testament was to provide for the Levites, wasn't it? That there were those who were working, so the Levites could then be set aside from vocational labor in that sense and serve God in the tabernacle and the temple, so then you see the interaction, the interaction, don't you, there, between now you've got work and labor and the church in that sense. There's interaction here as well. These are not absolutely distinct spheres. So work, put it this way, work is not just for you. If you work just for yourself, you have not bought into God's biblical ethic. If the only reason you work and labor is for your own benefit, then you don't understand the ethics of God's word regarding work. Work is for the benefit of wider society. And there are concentric circles outside you, so you're in the middle of those circles, and you go out from that to your, your wife, your children, and then you go to the poor and needy, and you go to wider society, and the benefit of the whole. Now, 
There are other things that are implied regarding work and the state. If you are to work, there is the requirement of order, particularly in a fallen world. So in an unfallen world, again, if Adam had, you know, this is hypothetical, I understand that, but if Adam had kept the law of God and lived, he would not have had to fear that his neighbor would have taken some of his land and began to plant his crops in his land. There would have been no corruption. There would have been no theft in terms of, of land and property. He could, have, he, if you like, he, could have, he could have left his cattle in the field without watching them because he would know that no neighbor would come and hustle his cows. You get the principle here. There would be order. But in a fallen world, for you to work, there is the requirement of protection of your property. There's understanding that in a fallen world, for you to work successfully, you need some degree of law and order and civil government to enable you to work for the benefit of the whole. And actually, that's, that's actually assumed, at least in principle here, in terms of Genesis chapter 1 and 2. And it is in the idea of having dominion. This idea of man having a dominion mandate over creation. That man, if you like, governs creation in such a way that it brings the best out of what God has given for us. And so you see immediately there why biblical ethicists, ethicists have drawn from the labor mandate in Genesis chapter 2 to the broader principles regarding church, sorry, regarding state and government and civil authority. And so that's where we have to go. We've got to work through some of these principles, but we should begin at the beginning. Labor is certainly a creation ordinance, and God's ethics for society begins if you like, with the building block of a man's commitment to labor. And I'm sure you hear the term, we often talk about the Protestant work ethic. What did that mean? Well, as part of the Protestant Reformation, there was a recognition again that God's calling upon people's lives was not just a calling to the priesthood or to be a nun or in some religious order, but God had a calling on people's life regarding every sphere of human labor. Well, I should say every sphere of those things that were legitimate in the Word of God. He's not, again, giving approval to those spheres of labor that were not according to God's law. But those spheres that are according to God's overarching law, those are divine callings upon your life. And so you go back to the building block. What's the building block, if you like, of, of church? It's the Lord's Day, Christian Sabbath. The building block of society in terms of family life is marriage. That's why the tax on marriage are so serious. And the building block of society regarding its general benefit is the biblical principles regarding work. That's why the attacks upon a Christian work ethic are so very, very dangerous. They go back and they undermine the very authority of God's Word. Now, if I was to come to you 18 months ago and say, well, clearly the devil attacks the Sabbath day and worship, and the devil attacks the family. You would say, well, yeah, we see that. But we are probably less aware of the devil's attacks on the concept of biblical work and labor. I think it's a major issue in society, and it's, it's inconceivable. The devil would attack the church and attack the family and leave the workplace untouched. And he hasn't. There's been very, very severe issues in that regard. And so we find ourselves, of course, as the Lord's people, we find ourselves under the obligation of Romans chapter 12, do not be conformed to this world. 
So what is the world's attitude to work? Give me some of your... What, what are your work colleagues like? Don't name them, please, okay? This is, this is on sermon audios. Don't, don't name your work colleagues, but what are their attitudes to work? Daniel, go ahead. Okay, that's a very good point. So I, I, that's a great, good phrase. They work so they don't have to work. Uh, and, and that's so true, true. So you, you get this, this idea of, well, I, I'm working for the weekend. My, my desire is to, is to get to, to Saturday, although nowadays the weekend begins probably Thursday in some people's minds, this idea of trying to extend the weekend or decrease the working week. Okay, so that's part of it, of course, also aiming for uh, how can I retire as early as possible? Well, to, to do what? You may retire from your job, but what are you going to do next? You know, Kim. And that's the, that's the most classic term uh, regarding work becomes a necessary evil. You know, that, that, actually, that mindset has been adopted by the church in some ways. That they see, they see Genesis 3 and the line of work in Genesis 3 as teaching that concept that work becomes this necessary evil. I've got to endure it. Now, work begins before the fall. Work is different after the fall, but it doesn't begin at the fall. It begins before the fall. So you've got this idea of working for retirement or for the weekend, necessary evil. Any other concepts? Yeah, Okay, so the, is the, the, yeah, amen. This issue that, again, Dan is saying that we're slow to talk about this, but again, you, well, you, you should live in the UK, brother. You know, this, this idea that you have this, this kind of idea that, well, we, the state can provide enough benefits to prevent people from working. We, we were certainly struck coming to the US that how many people were working later in life and also perhaps with significant uh, disabilities and challenges, and yet they were still engaged in gainful employment in the world. Back, back in the UK, a lot of those folks would be on regular long-term uh, aids and benefits, and they'd be kept out of the workplace. And, and so, got to be careful. There are the need, again, we're talking about this need, there's a need for God's people to benefit and help others who are poor and needy, and so we, we don't be harsh and callous in this regard, but the state has a responsibility to promote labor, not to promote idleness. And again, I think we've seen it in recent times, and it's a challenging thing to face as a church, but we've got to recognize that and seek to understand and teach our young people, this is what God expects of you. This is our labor mindset, and it's the problem, if I can swing the other way, is that sometimes the opposite of a kind of a socialistic idea and a beneficial idea is this kind of extreme sort of capitalism that is essentially materialistic. And so you get the other extreme where the idea is, I, I want to build my gods, but my gods are my money and my bank balance and my, all the property I have. And so that's also not Christian ethic. Not that you can't promote property. We'll come to that. If not today, we'll come to that next or two weeks' time after communion. We'll come to this idea that it's entirely appropriate to further your personal, uh, your personal wealth. But why are you doing it? What's the purpose of it? So you've got to keep all those things in mind. But yeah, that's very helpful, Dan. And so you get this idea of these issues, working for recreation, 
again, a necessary evil, or again, the issue in the state of promoting people uh, to not work rather than to labor industrially. Well, what about this matter? Well, what is God's will for man? Well, it is to labor, and we see that certainly in the garden. And in the garden, the precept is stated, verse number 15, well, it's there at least an implication. The Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. The idea is here that sinless man was shown that a holy, sinless life consisted in labor. Remember again, the second Adam, or Lord Jesus Christ, worked with his hands. He worked as a carpenter's son, and then as he enters into ministry, he does the father's work, but he continues to use the language of work and labor in his life as a sinless man. And so the ideal for mankind is this ideal of industrious labor. But while the precept is stated here, again in chapter 2, verse 15, dressing it and keeping it, and again the idea there is of, of using what God has given us to increase the usefulness of what God has given us. Keeping it, again, prior to the fall here. So God has made everything good. It would produce but there is still the need for man to, to cultivate that in that sense and to bring out the best of what God has made. It's a, it's a wonderful mystery in terms of God's creative purposes. Man was necessary for the fruitfulness of the garden before the fall. But this principle is, of course, reinforced by the interaction between the workplace and the church place. Turn to Genesis chapter 20, please. I'm going to raise this issue here because we know that in the creation ordinances, we've seen already chapter 2 of Genesis has the understanding of the Sabbath day. But know what it says there, verse number 8 of chapter 20 of Genesis. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor. And do all thy work. It's often a neglected command in the fourth commandment. Six days shalt thou labor. The understanding is that man is made to work. And the Sabbath principle rests upon the understanding that man is given to work. And must set aside time from that work to therefore enter into the blessing of the Sabbath day. The rest concept of the Sabbath makes no sense without the background of labor. So God has put right at the very beginning of his work this issue of labor. And so the pattern here is in dressing and keeping. There's this pattern of labor, and godly labor is productive and protective. And there is reward in that labor, the reward in enjoying the fulfillment of these purposes But what about after the fall? We'll turn to Genesis chapter 3 now. Turn across Genesis chapter 3. And undoubtedly, undoubtedly after the fall, there is a difference. Genesis chapter 3, verse 17. Unto Adam, so the Lord has spoken to Satan, spoken to the woman. And then verse 17. And unto Adam he said, 
Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree, of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it, cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground. For out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. Here's the language of, again, this condemnation to Adam. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. Now again, what's often missed here is that God has given to Adam here, in the language of curse, promises of blessing also. Look what it says. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it. Verse number 18, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. Verse number 19, in the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread. There's this continual promise of God's ongoing provision. Though it may take work to get the fruits of the ground, yet those fruits are promised. And so you get this idea of in wrath, God remembering mercy. In judgment comes these overtures of grace. You know, we do certainly find this world is altered by the fall Monday morning mentality is a mark of the fall. You know, when you're, I don't know what your own labor environment may be and how much interaction you have with other people in your labor environment, but when you get this idea, I hate Mondays, what you're really seeing there is a revelation of the fall of sin or fall into sin of mankind. It's a wonderful opportunity. He said, I hate Mondays. And you might say to him, well, did you practice God's law yesterday? You know, mankind that delight in the Sabbath will also delight in Monday. Strange, isn't it? You, 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 we look forward to the Lord's Day. We, we, we really want to be in God's house on the Lord's Day. But that's not God's will that we spend seven days in God's house. It is God's will that we work on Monday. And so as we embrace the Lord's Day, it's, we're glad when they say, let's go to the house of the Lord. In the same sense, I'm glad when they say, let's go back to the fields. It's hard. And if it's a mark of the fall, when we grumble and complain about work, what is the solution to it? It is the work of the Spirit in our lives. And so when you wake up on a Monday morning and you think, it's Monday again. What you need to do immediately is get on your knees. Lord, I need the help of the Spirit if I'm going to do what pleases you on a Monday through to Saturday. I can't do it in my own strength. In my own strength, I'm going to be just like the world. But by your grace and in your strength, I'm going to be what you want me to be. Doesn't say it's easy. You know, and so often we think of holiness in terms of morality, but holiness also implies what we're like in terms of our attitudes to the workplace and in the working week. And so, for those of you who have got to the point where you have entered into a different sphere of life and you've retired, you, you make sure, please, that you pray earnestly for those who are laboring for the benefit of society, that God will give them the grace to labor as unto the Lord. And so you get this understanding here. We need grace to conquer our sin. We praise God again for Christ, whose righteousness, Christ was a perfect laborer. 
His righteousness covers all of our laziness and sluggardliness. Christ's righteousness covers that from view. And again, we come back to the blessings of justification. His blood cleanses us from all of our grumblings and our complainings. And so may the Lord help us in this regard. So that's labored in the garden pre and post fall. Any comments on that before we move on to the second? Yeah, Dan. No, it's okay. Amen. Yeah, and so that, that, that idea of, of, of you're working for the glory of God, a couple of things, Dan, come to mind. First of all, we should recognize God's common grace in society and the impacts of the Reformation in so many of the Western countries. Where work is valued and understood, that's a mark of God's common grace in society. But as it's being eroded, we will see the consequence of that erosion. Okay, so we praise God for his common grace and unconverted people who work. And the same is true. Again, you go back to the 1950s. There was a a faithfulness and commitment to marriage that was part of God's common grace, understanding this is is God's good purpose without them being believers necessarily. And so that's what we term common grace in society. The other thing regarding witnessing, you know, in light of what I said here, your diligence and good attitude in work is itself a tremendous witness. Because it's countercultural now. And as the culture goes in a direction, you can really get yourself in a point like 1 Peter chapter 3, you've got to give a reason for the hope within you. Why are you like this, you strange person? And so it's not I, it's Christ that liveth in me. And again, those opportunities of witnessing for the glory of the Lord. Well, let's do one last uh, aspect. We'll come back to this uh, again in two weeks' time after communion. But let's think about this in terms of labor in the law. Again, back to Genesis chapter 20. Or sorry, Exodus chapter 20. Exodus 20 and the Ten Commandments. Again, just think through this principle with me again, just briefly. If what we're saying is true regarding the creation ordinances, you should expect to see the creation ordinances in the Ten Commandments. Okay, so think about it carefully. Before the fall, God is saying to Adam and Eve, this is how to live according to my will for your good. The Ten Commandments, this is how to live according to my will for your good. And of course, in the first table of the law, uh, first to the fourth commandment, we see clearly the language undergirding the principle of Sabbath and worship. Only one God to worship in the way that he commands us. On the day he commands us, that's all the first table. What about family life? Well, that's also there, isn't it? Number five and six, honor your father and mother. And also again, number sorry, five and seven, thou shalt not commit adultery. But there's also in through this, there are the principles again of societal life. It's in the fourth commandment, certainly there, six days shalt thou labor. But it's also in the eighth commandment. Thou shalt not steal. See, the opposite of stealing is working. 
And so in the negative, do not steal, is also include the positive, work diligently. In our shorter catechism, it's put this way. This is in terms of the Eighth Commandment. What is required in the Eighth Commandment? The Eighth Commandment requires the lawful procuring and furthering the wealth and outward estate of ourselves and others. What is forbidden? Whatsoever doth or may unjustly hinder our own or our neighbor's wealth or outward estate. You see, sometimes people have this idea that Christianity is a pursuit of poverty. Christianity is a willingness to embrace poverty if that is God's will. But Christianity is also fully committed to the embracing of the principle of pursuing wealth. But for the right reasons and for the right motives. And so we'll come back to that in the future when we come to think about this developed in the, in, the, in the New Testament, how these principles work out in the New Testament. But for now, please understand that God does not forbid the right of personal property. He forbids the love of it. He warns against the love of it. But the Lord is in favor of the principle of the protection of personal property. So later on, we'll come to the idea, well, what's the state do? What's the responsibility of governing authorities? Well, there are two very simple primary duties. It is to protect life and to protect property. That's pretty much it. Protect life and property. There are other things that are subsidiary underneath that, but that is essentially the function of the state. And so we have the right to pursue uh, the well-being of ourselves and others in the pursuit of property. You think of the wealth of the patriarchs. And we're going to come tonight to think about, again, a man whose wealth furthered the benefit of David as he flees from Absalom. God had provided wealth for him that he could then support the Lord's kingdom elsewhere. And so all these principles, we're going to come back to these things uh, later on as the Lord will. Let's just finish with one New Testament text. First Timothy chapter 6, because I want to finish this, because I'm conscious we're not coming back to this for, uh, again, two weeks. Next Lord's Day, we have uh, communion. So First Timothy chapter 6, just one last text. I think we'll put a cap on things for this morning, and then also allow us to go forward in the Lord's will next time. So First Timothy chapter 6, and the verse number 17, where the Word of God says, As charge them that are rich in this world, that they be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who giveth us richly all things to enjoy, that they do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate, laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. And so you see there in the principles what we've seen so far that there is no sharp division between the secular and the spiritual. Because he's saying here, verse number 6, that as you give yourself to labor diligently, you're laying up for yourself a good foundation against the time to come. And so our labor in the secular realm ought to be intrinsically spiritual. It is unto the Lord, and it is for the glory of God and the benefit of the church of Christ and the furtherance of the gospel. All of these things are the reasons whereby we labor in this regard. You've also got the warnings, again, the abuse of these things, that those who are wealthy may end up trusting in their riches, even though they're uncertain. You know, it's a wonderful gospel text there. Do not trust in uncertain riches, but trust in the certainty of the unchanging gods. 
the danger of trusting those things that are easily turned around rather than God who can never, ever fail us. So you get this idea then, well, there are warnings and dangers, but again, the dangers and the warnings, they should not be taken to suggest for a second that those who are rich cannot indeed use their riches. They are to do good, verse 18. They are to be rich in good works. They are to distribute and to communicate this idea of sharing what they have for the benefit of others. So we'll end things there for today. And again, I think it's just a good way to summarize what we've seen from the start through to that text. We'll come back next time we're together in this regard and look at this in some more, in some more detail through the rest of the scriptures. Any final comments or questions? Yeah, George. So yeah, just again, for those who are watching on, George said that really one of the marks of our fallen nature prior to conversion is resistance of these things. And it begins, again, there's, there's an authority structure there in the home, in the church, and in the, in the state. There are there. But there's also kind of the embracing of these things. We don't, we don't delight, like unconverted young people don't delight in the prospects of marriage. They want to run ahead too quickly. They, they resist against the idea of work and labor. And they certainly fight against the concept of worshiping God. And so the fact that we hold these things dearly is a mark of God's grace in your life. And you, you praise, we praise God for that. And his kindness toward us, opening our eyes to see these things. And we must pray for our society. Again, that God would show mercy to them, allowing them also to see the blessings of living according to his perfect will. All right, let's pray. We'll seek God's face. Let's all bow together again. Heavenly Father. We realize, O oh Lord, that your word cuts against so much of this modern evil age. We realize, O oh God, that we're living in a spiritual battle, and we pray for the grace to put on the armor of God, that we would not just assume that our spiritual battles are in the church place or in some other realm of society like the family, but we also must stand firm for truth in the social sphere, and that we are those who will do good to all, yes, especially of the household of the faith, but we are committed to do good to all. Help us to be kind to our neighbor, to love our neighbor, even as we love ourselves, and seek to further their eternal good. We pray you'd bless us now, watch over us, we ask. Help us to worship our rights this morning. Keep your hand upon us in Jesus' precious name. Amen.